What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I am Mark DeVoe, and we'd like to thank you and thank everyone who's turned up to listen today, and especially our Academates and our patrons uh, who are supporting this show and making it possible. If you'd like to support the show, please pop along to uh, bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and find out about all the goodies you get. And if you're interested in joining the Academy, pop over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Mr. Stay, I, uh, I'm feeling rather relaxed, actually, having been off camping for a week. You escaped the bears. I did escape the bears, <laughs> although although we were sitting by a, we were sitting by a river, and dusk came, and lo and behold, just on the other side of the bank, we suddenly understood what the holes were in the side of the mud bank. They were bat caves, and we had about eighty bats, literally skimming the water, grabbing these flies. It was, and they were coming so close, and all I could think of was Wuhan and COVID. I was like, uh oh. <laughs> But no, in all seriousness, it was absolutely uh, mind blowing. It was like being yeah. in a in some famous five adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! Yeah, brilliant stuff. How are you keeping, sir? I'm very good. I'm still recovering from seeing my movie, which is uh, nice. So I heard, um, tell me, because I, I remember getting an email from you, and and, and you mentioned that you were going to. It was like a last opportunity to see your film. It on the big screen before yeah, it before of, it's released. So tell yeah. t- tell tell me what happened. Where where did you go? Was it in London? Yes, it's uh, London swinging Soho. In fact, Ooh. Uh, yeah. So it's uh, the Soho screening rooms, which are quite famous. Uh, and wow. it was the finished version. Basically, it was everyone's last chance to see it and suggest any changes because after that, boom, it's locked uh, and ready to go. And it was you know so. We're talking about the the magical arts of post-production here. So the visual effects were all done. It had been graded, which means the colour had been graded all the way through, which in itself is just mysterious to me. The sound had been completely mixed. So this was it. And um, some of the cast were there seeing it for the first time as well. Oh, and they wow. brought their other halves, which was interesting. So you're sitting there thinking, oh, I really hope they like it. And their other halves were who had n- knew nothing about it, had never seen it before, were laughing in the right place, screaming oh. and jumping in the right place. So that was great. Um, but the string, the, the bit, and it, this is right at the beginning, which I completely forgot about, the Warner Brothers shield at the start. Yeah. I, I sat there going, oh, oh yeah, I've, 
I've read a Warner Brothers movie. <laughs> it was just it was just an out-of-body experience. It's like, oh, this is a proper film. And so that's my new ambition. I'm going to collect studio logos throughout my career. I've got a Warner Brothers. So I want the Paramount Mountain. I want the Universal Globe. I want Leo the MGM Lion. DreamWorks would be nice. My favourite 20th Century Fox is gone because Disney have gobbled that up. So I'll have to get two Disneys for that. Uh, Columbia, of course, holding well, her. I was going to say that, that was the one yeah. I thought of, the lamp and the, the stars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I and love it. Yeah, yeah. So what, that's, what my, fa- that's my new ambition. <laughs> I love it. Love the bucket. Love the new bucket list. And actually, how brilliant. I mean, to, you know, because on the Academy and on this podcast, we've been talking about, you know, imagine if one day a book that you wrote or a screenplay that you wrote became a, a, a movie with a major studio. Um, imagine what that would be like. And I always talk about what's the dream of the dream. And there you are. The dream of the dream is right. I've done I've done the Warner. Yeah, tick. I don't mind a few more of them, obviously. I'm not going to turn <laughs> oh, those yeah, down. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But... Oh, yeah. But let's let's see if we can get the collection. I was going to say it must be w- really weird because, I mean, there's so much a part of watching movies. You know, you sit down and it's kind of like the anticipation and you see the logo come up. But because you see it so often, it's just second nature. So it, it must have been really weird when it just kind of came up and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, this is my movie. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's a small screening room, and I, I in this small screen, I always sit in the front row, so I can stretch my legs, and I don't have to look at anyone else. That's the thing I've oh, learned. If you have everyone behind you, whereas John, John, I think prefers to sit at the back so he, he can study because he's seen he's seen it a gazillion times, so he can so he can gauge snooze. reactions. <laughs> <laughs> he can have a nap, more on napping later. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so so I I prefer just just to you know completely lose myself in it, which I did, which I oh. did. Um, yeah, no, it's such it, a brilliant cast experience. Are fantastic, so good, and and like I say, th- those mysterious arts of of post production. You know, so something that was shot in a wood that looked, you know, looked like it was a wood. When the VFX team and the grading and the sound mix, when you add all of that on top of it, it becomes it. It's just transforms it into cinema. Yeah. You know, and it it really does elevate it to a whole other level, and uh, and I can I can tell. I think we should reveal this to people if we haven't already. I heard you in it, Mister D. You're loud and clear. <laughs> Mister D has an audio cameo, which you're gonna have to. This is it. You're gonna have to make a make a march for the the, the box office to hear it, and it got a laugh as well. So that's good. I can. <laughs> that's brilliant. I didn't get cut then. That's amazing no, news. My voice did. My voice did, but yours is still in. Oh. Well, I have to personally thank you, Mark, for 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 asking me to do that because that I mean that was such an honour and so much fun to record. I was in my studio recording, but we'll we'll talk more about that down the road when the no when the spoilers, comes out, no, sure. spoilers no spoilers, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I was going to mention is with the. Um, for anyone who's literally like thinking, what on earth are they talking about? I've just shown up. Just yeah. never heard this podcast before. <laughs> this is a movie that called Unwelcome, which Mark wrote in 2019. Uh, well, we finished it just before lockdown started. That's right. Um, so 20, yeah. 2020. And, and went into production. And then with COVID, there was, you know, obviously, as every movie's had, you know, delays and the like. But this was the final final version and there were people now just to kind of put this into perspective of people who haven't really heard us talking about this in the podcast earlier i mean when you talk about vfx and things like that we're talking about you know some people who've worked on some pretty amazing movies like harry potter some of the creature folks well, and Pad- paddy Star Wars. Uh, pa- paddy eason who's one of who's the vfx um supervisor 
uh, I think his first job was the Muppet Christmas Carol. Okay, so that's wow. how far back he goes. Uh, yeah, he's worked on a lot of the Harry Potters, uh, a whole bunch of Marvel movies, a whole... Uh, he did Robot Overlords. Um, he did Grabbers, uh, which is John's film before Robots. Uh, I mean, he's got an incredible CV, and the team around him are just phenomenal. You know, The uh, I, I thing is, in the UK, VFX are... Just amazing. There, mm. there are three major hubs of VFX in the world. There's um, obviously Hollywood, Industrial Light and Magic, and, and companies like that here in the UK, and actually Australia uh, with Weta and uh, New Zealand as well uh, with Weta. Yeah, Sorry, rather. Uh, um, they, they've got some Lord terrific the Rings, VFX there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Richard, um, uh, is it Richard? Um, oh, I've forgotten his name. I know the guy you Jackson. mean. He's on all the making of. Yeah, he's got quite a high-pitched voice, and he's an absolute bloody genius, yeah. Oh, he's- you're talking about VFX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think. Um, see, and the reason we're talking about this is anyone writing a book, you might be thinking, well, what, what's this relevance of this? The point <laughs> is, is that when you write a book, this is what can potentially happen. It can potentially become a movie, and you get to actually kind of be a part of or experience the journey of it being made into something visual, which I know, I know from all the people we've spoken to, a lot of people in the academy, you know, that's one of, it's, it's obviously a lot of people don't mention it because they think, oh, it's never going to happen or I can't like publicly declare I want my my book to become a major movie. But I know everyone dreams of this really. I mean, who wouldn't, who wouldn't ultimately? So part of the reason for us kind of going on this journey with Mark and kind of really delving in because is to kind of get, get give you a real life feel of what it really is to help keep encouraging you to keep writing to like because it's those crappy days isn't it it's those days when you don't want to write you've got to keep pushing through because this can happen and, and you're I mean you're living proof of it Mark now if an idiot like me can do it <laughs> Well, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No. Us, our, our childish banter, as we've been told, you know, if, if us, if kids like us can do things, then so, you know, so can you. So that's, that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, I, I cannot wait. Now, I guess no word. No on word on release date. Release no. date. And what I about think- people in the, in the actual cast? Because I'm, I'm wearing a certain t-shirt today. Can you actually mention who's, who's in it? Some yeah, of the it's, names it's, that... on, it's on IMDb. It's on IMDb. Oh, okay. So, because yeah. I want to say that, because uh, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan, um, there is a Game of Thrones actor in the show, in the film, right? Yeah, yeah. Christian Nairn, who played Hodor, Hodor right? Hodor, who so is who is who is the sweetest man you will ever meet. I can imagine he looks like um, a big cubby teddy bear. He's lovely because we had a we had a day of rehearsal with uh, with him and Chris Wally and uh, Jamie Lee O'Donnell. Now, Chris Wally, people will know from uh, Young Offenders on BBC, and Jamie Lee O'Donnell is one of the Derry girls. So we've got a Derry girl, a Young Offender, and one of the Game of Thrones cast, and they're playing siblings. And uh, one, one of the most fun days ever, we, we had a day of rehearsal, going through their pages on the script. Yeah. They got it up on its feet. They're bringing it to life with they're suggesting changes they're working you know on 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 their back and forth and it was just it was just such a happy day and they 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 are such what's nice is for reasons i won't go into one other member of the cast couldn't make shooting one day Hmm. so i said let's get jamie lee and chris together uh and give them this scene so i got to write in in mid shoot i got to write a scene for the two of them and that was great because i'd seen them in action i knew what they were capable of and they knock it out the park um so working with those three was just just a joy absolute joy and christian is is terrific in this oh that's so brilliant and i watched a movie last week on amazon prime called the banker and it had in it none other than 
Colm Meany, who oh, I know yeah. is Colm, a big yeah. Yeah, in yeah, the yeah. yeah, and he's brilliant. He's such a brilliant actor, so I can't wait to see him in the movie as well. But anyway, I guess we should move on and talk about uh, talking about our special guest. Talk, yes. Talking of TV, yeah. I mean, it just carries on TV and film. Merlin, I believe. I yeah. saw that he's written for Merlin. My kids loved Merlin on the BBC. That was, and um, I think Netflix. Um, I know. So tell us, tell us a bit about our special guest this week, Richard McBrien. Oh, Richard McBrien, as you say, and he's writing novels under R.J. McBrien. Uh, he's a former scriptwriter for Spooks, Wallander, The Bill. We talk about that a bit. Uh, but he's got a debut crime thriller, Reckless, which is out, uh, as you're listening to this, out this week uh, under the name R.J. McBrien. I, I met... Uh, I say met online, met Richard at the London Book Fair. We did a panel together. He was really, really good fun. And uh, we discuss things like leaving story problems to your subconscious. He gives us a fascinating insight to writing for TV shows like The Bill, and that has something in common with the 200-word-a-day challenge. Uh, we talk about making the voices of, of your characters distinct, the importance of naps, and how to kill someone without leaving a trace. <laughs> Brilliant. So let's dive in and have a listen to Mark chatting with the wonderful Richard McBrien. Richard McBrien, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? Very well, thanks. Excellent stuff. Reckless, your debut nev- novel. Tell us all about it. It's it's got a great high concept idea at the heart of it. Uh, give us give us a quick pricey. Uh, a quick pricey would be it's told from a woman's point of view who seems to have a perfect marriage. Uh, she has a lovely husband and a child, but she has a raging libido, which is not being satisfied by her husband. She, by chance, comes across a friend who is in a similar position, who introduces her to a discreet agency, which hooks up people in a similar position, who wish to have affairs, but don't wish to wreck their marriages. And then it's really her journey through this reckless, one could say, uh, process. <laughs> and of course, things don't go quite according to plan. From her, yes. her point of view. That that's one of those setups you just know is going to go horribly, horribly wrong. Uh so was this that's uh, what we were saying. exactly this like I said, it's, it feels like a high concept idea. Was it your background is in film and television? Was it ever a movie idea? Was it ever something a, a script one day that never yes, never got made? I, I, I this idea as a, as a film, a film idea. Somebody many years ago sent me a um, uh, an article from a magazine, which was an interview with somebody who'd set up an agency like this purely to make money. And then the magazine interviewed uh, a couple of people, about four people who had gone through the process. I think one man, three women. And they were all disastrous. Uh, they, they all ended unhappily. Um, either one of them fell in love with the other one and then it wasn't reciprocated or it was just all too sordid. But I, it was a good idea for a film, I thought, and I, but I put it aside, nothing much happened. And then I enrolled on the Faber, you know, the Faber novel writing course. And for that one, you have to have an idea. So, so I went back and I thought, well, maybe, maybe that's quite a high concept idea for a novel, because I knew I wanted to write a sort of contemporary thriller rather than a, than a literary novel. So I went back to my old idea and then with a certain amount of help, put it in, you know, made it into a novel. That, that was the origin of it. Excellent stuff. It's so strange. Real life is so much stranger than fiction, isn't it? I mean, yeah. is this something you have a radar for? Are you constantly jotting down uh, strange real life events that can go into books and films? Yes. Uh, you know, when you hear strange people's stories, I just make a little note of it and hope that I'll one day be able to fit it in. I mean, sometimes I try and fit it in 
because I think it's such a great original idea and then it doesn't work. I have to cut it out again. <laughs> it seems to happen quite a lot for me. <laughs> I mean, to get rid of this stuff. Uh, but yes. Having, having moved from the world of screenwriting over to writing novels, what were the biggest challenges and, and changes that for, for you in that process? I found it... Um, well, it's much longer. Well, you must know this. It's a much longer process. So writing a novel, I had no idea <laughs> how long it was going to be. If you think that a, a script is that the ones that I wrote were uh, films were only 120 pages and a TV series might be only 50 to 40 pages, something like that, which is, and then a novel is 400 pages. Uh, so the sheer amount of work I thought was, was more difficult. And I think a lot of film and TV is really an anecdote expanded into uh, you know, a, 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 an episode, whereas a novel is far more complicated because I, I found that quite difficult, juggling you know, subsidiary characters, subsidiary plots, uh, having time to sort of go off sideways, whereas a, a, a television thing tends to, be, it tends to be quite simple, fairly simple anyway, compared to a novel. So I found that difficult and I found it quite a lonely process, uh, whereas in television you're you know, you're writing treatments and you're working with script editors. And then if it gets anywhere, you're, you've got your producer and you've got your director. And eventually maybe your slightly unhelpful actor, no, your actors, obviously, who always have a view about why they can't possibly say that. Um, and I, I quite like that. So I'd go into meetings with my, you know, wherever, wherever I'd got to. And we'd have a chit-chat, cups of coffee and, you know, it was more interactive, whereas I found writing a novel much more lonely and having no idea whether it was any good. Because a lot of, as you mentioned, it's a lot of commitment, isn't it? You take a big chunk of time and you have no idea whether, especially if you're a first time novelist, whether it's going to be any good or whether you're going to have to chuck it in the bin and nobody's ever, ever going to buy it. Whereas in television, you tend to get commissioned. So at least you get paid a little bit and then you have input. And then it's fairly quick. So all those things were, uh, you know, <laughs> difficult for me. I found those challenging. Of course, when you're a novelist as well, you you have to be production designer. You're describing the set. You have to be care and costume and makeup and all of that as well. Were, were they were they big challenges for you too? Yes, I think those were that was true because I, I, I sent it to a few people early on, early uh, days. I sent various sections. And they would say, well, what does this person look like? Uh, in a film, you'd go, uh, attractive man, mid-30s, think athlete crossed with something else. And then they sort all, they sort all that out. Or the actor sorts it out, as you say, the costume designers. Or you say, you know, contemporary home in a, in a London setting. The production people sort all that out. So, yes, you're right. I had to go back and think, what would this person look like? And particularly, it was tricky from my point, because I was writing it, from a first person's point of view, was how to explain what my narrator looked like without her saying, this is what I look like. Because obviously in a film, she just walks down the road, you get it in a, you know, the hat, the clothes, the handbag, the car, you know, all those things in films are very easy to do because you just say, I don't know, Gucci handbag, blah, blah, dress, gets into an Audi A8 or something. And that tells you quite a lot. I, I find it quite difficult to have a mirror up to a person who's telling the story without people saying, oh, I do love your big hands or whatever she, whatever she happens to have. 
Let's talk about uh, your career because uh, you did have this extraordinary career in television and film. And how did it all start out for you? What what made you take that? Well, I always wanted. Uh, I wanted to. I started off by writing plays. I always wanted to write plays, so I, I did that at school and at university. And then I had a job cleaning loos in a flight simulating company, which was very very boring. So I used to hide in there and write. I wrote a play. I entered for the this is a hundred years ago for the Brighton Festival, which was the first ever Brighton Festival. Right. So uh, it was quite easy to win this competition because <laughs> nobody else had heard of it. But I won that competition, which was a one act play. And that was quite helpful for me to get a little bit further. And then I went off to America and went to Yale Drama School as a playwright, uh, which was also, that, that was helpful, but that was still doing plays. And then eventually I uh, came back to England and realised I wasn't making enough money out of plays. And somebody said, you should write TV and start at the bottom, which was the bill in those mm. days. The bill was on three times a week and they gave a lot of uh, chances to new people, actors, directors, writers. They just, they would, you know, you could, you could do because it, it was cheap. It was only half an hour. And from there I, I worked in television and then in film. And then more recently, I got, it's quite a frustrating business, the television business. So somebody said, my wife said, if you're frustrated, why don't you write a novel? Which I thought was impossible, which it, it nearly is. And in order to help myself, I went on this course, which is a focus. So I had to do two and a half thousand words a week or whatever it was. And that's how I started getting into this business. But it's very, this is very, all quite new for me, this whole process of the publishing business. Did you um, set yourself targets, sort of daily targets? Because I know with a lot of screenwriters, they tend to aim for, you know, a certain number of pages per day, where you're aiming yeah. for a certain number of words per day. Yes, I was trying to do 1,500 words a day, which was which I did sometimes and totally failed on other times. <laughs> and But I had, I had a tendency to go back and, which I think, I don't know, lots of people say it's a mistake. I go back and I read what I've done before. I go back sort of six pages and then catch up again. And then sometimes that would mean I didn't write my 1,500 words. But I did find that doing something every day was vital. Otherwise, I would forget where I was in terms of, I couldn't hear the voices of the characters. So if I took two weeks off, I'd come back and I would struggle to try and get back into the whole thing. Whereas you know, with film and television, you're, you, you, you seem to be able to juggle things because you might be doing two scripts at once or a script and a treatment and then a polish of another. So you seem to be able to juggle things more easily. I found it more difficult to get into my character's world of in prose. So I had to do... So I had to keep doing it every single day. Yes, you, you, you're carrying a lot more of the story on your shoulders, aren't you? Whereas in, in TV, yes. there'll be someone looking after the actors, there'll be someone looking after the, you know, the, the production or whatever. Whereas it's, yeah. all, it's all down to you in the end, isn't it, with a novel? Yeah, I know. That's what's, that's what, that's what's nerve-wracking. But, I mean, at the moment, I haven't had any reviews, so I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. I'm a happy day because I've got it out, but nobody's, you know, very few people have read it. So... This is a nice time talking to you. <laughs> you know, who knows what happens next week or whenever it comes out? Two weeks. Time. So uh, yes, it's it, it's uh, well. Going back to your thing, I think I think a target, but at least a target of doing working on it every day is important for me. Mm. 
I, and you are a write every day kind of person. Has that always been yeah. your, your habit? Yes, just do it like an office job. So I just you know, get come to work. I work in a, a sort of outhouse this here, and I try and get here eight thirty. You know, and I'm working, and then lunch. Obviously, I have to have a little snooze as we get older. Exactly. I, I, funny enough, my, my wife has written the first draft of a novel and she's written children's books before, but never a full length novel. And she's working on revisions now. And she said to me last night, this is quite hard work, isn't it? I said, yes, that's why I need the naps. I need to recharge my brain in the afternoon. It is a middle-aged thing, I think. But I have to recharge my brain in, in the afternoon because there's just so much going on in there. How long do you have your snooze for? Half you an go, hour. You go to bed. No, I... I, I <laughs> This is confession. That sofa there, half an hour, I set an alarm on my phone because uh, weirdly, I used to do this when I I, I was a sales rep for a publisher. So I'd drive around the country. And when you'd go from, you know, south of London all the way to Dorset or whatever, that was a long day. And you you didn't want to be drowsy driving back. So I would do that thing of parking in a lay-by and setting setting an alarm as well. And you'd wake up completely reinvigorated, actually. Just half an hour is all I need just to reboot the brain. Well, I have a similar thing. You can't see it, but I have exactly the same. I have a little (laughs) sofa, and I think I'm just going to let the subconscious, you know, take half an hour. I think more than half an hour is hopeless because I then wake up completely groggy. Yes. Yeah, that's not good for then me. I, then I, would do, I tend to do my creative, my more creative thing in the morning. And then my if I'm doing edits and stuff in the afternoon, and then I gradually sort of, I probably stop at about five or six, something like that. It's like yes. a normal day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. I, you know, I, and it, you're right about the subconscious. There is definitely something going on in there yeah. that, you know, and I will have a notepad by where I'm snoozing because if I wake up and I have an idea I just have to suddenly get it down yeah. there's, there's definitely it's definitely listeners snoozing and napping is definitely part of the creative process you know I mean I know a friend who, who goes if he gets stuck uh, on a plot he goes for a long walk mm-hmm. and in some way that, that where he's not really thinking it's something about leaving your subconscious to get on with it mm. for a bit yeah it's quite yeah. important I yeah I mean, it's, it's that thing we've we've had we get this from TV writers a lot, actually, where they don't worry about getting blocked because they have to, you know, TV is desperate for content. You have to get stuff out there. You can't afford to be blocked. You just have to get over it and solve a problem. I mean, you you were in at the deep end with the bill, you know, like you said, it was three times a week. How did you ever, if you ever got stuck, how did you ever overcome those hurdles? Uh, the, the, it's a, it was a funny process, the bill, because the, you used to pitch your idea in a paragraph. Uh, and the, the bill was a very um, formulaic thing in the sense that you they had sets that were inside you know they already had that you you had to have like three quarters of your 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 idea in those sets and the other bit could be outside it all had to happen in with one shift eight hours so you couldn't send off fingerprints and DNA and all that sort of stuff so you're so in a sense you're suddenly you're you're already limited which is in some ways is quite helpful. And then you you have a paragraph, and you go in with five paragraphs of totally different ideas, and you go, I've got an idea about an antique dealer, and then he, he opens up the clock and there's cocaine inside it or something. And they go, no. And then you go, da, 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 da. and then they go, all right, then you can you can do number four. And then you write up number four, like four pages. And there's no money is passed hands by this point. And they, they say, yeah, all right, that's quite, that's quite good. Now work that even more. And at that point, they pay you to do a treatment. Right. And at that point, you work with a script editor quite a lot. You might meet up with them and they say, well, that doesn't quite work. And then you have a prose uh, breakdown of every scene. And then 
they can say goodbye or they can say go to script. Then you do the first script and at that point they can say goodbye. So it's much more structured than, than what you're doing, what I'm doing from terms of writing a novel because you haven't got that person pushing you along. So it's, uh, that's what I said earlier, you know, it's, it, it, in a way TV is much easier in some ways, you know, that, that sort of television. Because you're accountable to someone. And this is something we, we, we talk yeah. about on the podcast a lot. We've set up a 200-word-a-day challenge where you bank your words every day. And you, in some ways, you're accountable to us. So did you find yeah. a way when you're writing, when you're trying to hit your 1,500 words a day, did you did you reward yourself? Did you make yourself accountable in any way? Were you telling your agent? How did, how did you do that? Well, I was doing it's, it's a bit similar to, to what you're doing, which I think is a brilliant idea that you, you force people to do it. Because I was doing this course every week on a last day, Wednesday, I had to do, had to have my two and a half thousand words, you know, even if you're writing them the night before. So that was quite a good focus. Of, you know, that I did find helpful. And by the time I'd done that, I was far enough along that I could see the end. Because at the beginning, I couldn't, I just seemed a very long way away to write the end. Um, so that was helpful. I think some, somebody nagging you or, or something to push you along or say, where's your words? Or I'd like to see what it is on Friday. I think those are all brilliant ideas. Yeah. Excellent. I haven't got that at the moment. That's a slow problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, I guess you're, you're in contract, aren't you? You're published by Welbeck. So are they going to expect another book at some point? Yes. Um, so uh, how's, how's that coming? Oh, it's the question you never like to ask writers in contract. How's the new book coming along? <laughs> Well, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's not too bad. I, 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 well, I won't say I'm not going to hit my deadline, but clearly I'm not, <laughs> because I've, uh, it takes longer than I thought. But it's, it's going all right. I'm, I'm more confident in the fact that, I, because I've done it, at least I know I've done it once, but less confident in the sense because I'm doing it entirely without the things that you're talking about, which is somebody saying, well, can I have a look at it and you know, see it as it goes along? It's, it's, a, it's a very high-concept idea, which is probably slightly silly, uh, to give myself this difficulty. It's about a woman who pays uh, another woman to have an affair with her husband. See, I think that's quite a good hook. <laughs> but then what? Right. Obviously. I'm in the then what phase. Okay. I, no, I, that's, I have got an idea. The, the, the then what phase is, is a fun phase. Um, yeah. What, what, are your, what are the strategies you've developed to work with that over the years? Uh, I always think that... It's got to make sense from everybody's point of view. So that I've got, you know, I've, whether it's the good person or the bad person. So I, sometimes I think about it in terms of what's this story like from the, the good person. If everything worked out, not that it will, but if everything worked out, what would happen? And from the bad baddies' point of view or the you know, antagonist's point of view, what would happen if it all worked out from their point of view? So that it, so that I don't have. Uh, bad characters or, or things that trip people up, which don't make any sense other than the fact that they trip them up. <laughs> They're not just twists because, oh, it would be good if that happened. It's got to make sense from each person's point of view. So I, I work out that. Uh, and, it, and then what I'm trying to do, which is, uh, may again be slightly tricky, I'm, I'm doing it from two people's point of view, which is the wife who pays a woman to have an affair with her husband and the person who's being paid to have an affair with the husband. But you never see the husband. You only see the husband from these two unreliable people, both of whom have got an agenda. And then gradually, you know, in the ideal world, you you get this picture of this poor man <laughs> who everybody's got it in for, really. 
as he as he's revealed between these two narratives, which sounds a great idea in principle, turns out to be quite difficult. Well, that's the thing. I'm, as a reader, I'm thinking, wow, that's that's. A, I'd love to read that. That's a cracking book. And as a writer, I'm thinking, why yeah, are you right. making life so difficult for yourself? <laughs> exactly. I don't know why I started it. Uh, yes, exactly. It'd be much easier if it was just straight, straightforward <laughs> idea. But I've always liked um, the unreliable. You know, is it Rashomon, where they, where that film where it's told from several different points, or Rashomon, or yeah. um, the Usual Suspects? Yeah. Yeah, it's rational. Yeah, I mean that's a great, a brilliant film, isn't it? Where it's told from him, and every single one of them sums up. And I like that as an idea. Yeah, Rashomon has has become shorthand in the writing community for the the whole point of view unreliable narrator argument, has it? Oh, we'll do it like Rashomon. Yeah, which and it it's much easier yeah. said than done, isn't it? <laughs> Very difficult because again, you've got to make sense. It's got to make sense from each person's point of view. Um. Regarding point of view, and it's something we, we've been having conversations about on our academy as well, you know, uh, about making that point of view distinct, uh, yeah. no, especially if you're talking about um, two women who I assume are, are a similar kind of age and maybe perhaps background. How, how are you finding keeping their voices distinct? How are you, how are you working on yeah, that? I, did, I, I am finding that difficult. And, and actually, I'm fi- I found at the beginning when I started to get the voice of my first novel out of my head to try and put that aside and right. not... Otherwise, I thought it's going to sound exactly like that. Um, I decided to make them, uh, uh, try to make them as different as possible. The wife, who is paying the person to have the affair, is older, so she's sort of say fifty-ish, and the and the other and uh, you know a, a professional, as it were, and the other one is an actress, which is why she's employed to pull this trick off, and is much younger. Uh, so I think that helps me to a certain extent that they are they are very different. And at one point, I thought. I would make one American to do exactly what you're saying to try and yes. overcome this problem. But I'm not sure that really works. That's a bit of a cheap idea. Uh, and so I'm now trying to, I did quite a lot of research. Obviously, you know, research is fundamentally wasting time, so you don't have to start uh, <laughs> on uh, actors. And I know quite a few actors. So I thought I know, I know that I've come across them over the years. I sort of understand how difficult their life is and how easy it is to fall between, you know, by the wayside, to be very successful at one minute and then mm. vanish and see six or seven people at any given time who are successful and feel quite bitter about it. So I thought it would be, I, I can sort of imagine that person. I've met that person. Probably am that person. <laughs> so that would help. <laughs> and then the other one, the older one, uh, I, I because I know people of that age as well. So that's how I did it. I was sort of trying to, I picked voices that I know in reality. To be yes. Honest. Yeah. Which uh, so often it's it's little specific things, isn't it? It's little specificities yeah. that that help people stand out. And again, coming back to where we where we started, you know, little bits of real life, you know, stranger than stranger yes. than uh, than fiction kind of stuff. Now, it, I, I'm looking at you. Uh, listeners won't see this, but if if we put this on YouTube, you might be able to see this. Behind Richard, I can see a book there, and it looks like the Crime Writer's Handbook. Is that? Oh, it is. Yeah, excellent. A, a fantastic. <clears throat> That's it, the it's Crime Writer's it. Guide. It's very good. It's very good. Yeah, as, uh, as, as someone who, you know, you, you've written things like The Bill, and obviously that needs to feel real uh and when you're writing crime thrillers yourself like this what we talked about research there and re- research is procrastination uh well, do you have a do you have a particular a process for for research particularly when it comes to writing crime thrillers 
Yeah, so I mean, in the crime uh, that I used to do, because I used to, I, I did the bill and I did some other sort of uh, TV crime for this. We used to have um, crime advisors. So that we had ex-policemen who sat around in the bill's office reading the newspaper and smoking cigarettes. But, but actually, you could ask them any question. And on, the, on Spooks, which I wrote, they, we had people on the end of a phone. So you could say, how do you kill somebody in a room? You know, how do you, and it turns out, actually, you don't do it with a gun. Uh, you've got to do it very close up with something that can't be traced, like a knife. So I, thought it was, I thought it was fascinating. I always thought you'd kill somebody from miles away. Yeah, yeah. Said if you, if they said if you're over 50 feet away, you could miss. You know? mm. So you've got to be very close. So I had access to those people. And then I would do, on this, this book I did, which was more police procedural stuff, I did, I did a certain amount of research on the internet. And then I found a police advisor called Graham Bartlett. I don't know if you've come across him, but he's an ex-policeman who, who has a very good service and website for writers. And so I got in touch with him and I said, you read my policey bits for me and tell me where I've got it wrong. And he was absolutely brilliant. He went through every single one. I said, this is wrong. This, you know, this is what you, this is how it works. You know, this is what a, this is what a crime scene number looks like. This is how many digits it's got, all the little things that make it look a bit better. So I do a certain amount and then I cheat and ask somebody. <laughs> I actually just asked him how to do it. You know, and there's a lots of police advisors you know, out there. They're all being ex. I mean, this, this guy was a policeman, wasn't he? I yes, think. he was. Yeah. Michael yeah. O'Brien. Yeah. 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 I mean, I found that very useful. Um, so yes, I, I I I do a certain amount, but mostly on the internet. Needless to say, I don't know about you, Richard, but it feels like nap time. So maybe we should wrap up. Um, but <laughs> what's happened? <laughs> our duvet. We've we've already talked about your next book, but uh, do you have further books? Is now you've gone into the world of novel writing? It, uh, it, is this, has this become a happy place for you? Is it, are we be doing more of this? Well, I would love to. Do. A third one, but I mean, I was, I don't know, I was advised that if you're get, that, that if you want to sort of progress, you should try and do things in the same genre. So this, so my second one and the first one are similar in the sense they're domestic thrillers about, you know, knocking shops and things like that. But I would also, I've, uh, I, I have an idea for a thriller thriller, mm-hmm. and which I'd like to do, which isn't domestic and isn't to do with, you know, living in an urban environment. So I, I've got that as an idea, whether that would be acceptable or whether, whether you know, authors get sort of pigeonholed into things. I don't know. Do they? I don't know whether you're allowed to jump out into something slightly different. I think, I think you are. I think you are perhaps... Um, well, it depends. I mean, if this is an absolute smash hit, then you you might find that they want the same but different for the rest of your life, which can be more of a curse and a blessing. But of course, you know you have pseudonyms, you have pen names that you can take on. But uh, it's interesting. You could, uh, we've yes. we've interviewed authors like Steve Kavanagh, who's a terrific crime thriller writer, and he's um, I think where well, he does those kind of legal thrillers. But he's gone from quite domestic stuff to real high concept stuff as well. Interestingly, we're hoping to get him back on the show later in the year to talk about how his career has progressed. But I, I think that is, you know, the option is always there. I think as long as you're, you know, you've got a, a good story well told. I think, um, particularly in the, in the thriller market, yes. there's there's always always demand for more. So hopefully we'll get more from you for many years to come. Well, if I ever can work out my ridiculously complicated plot of this next. <laughs> 
then I'll be back. Yeah, I've just realised that's really unfair to ask an author to explain their plot when they're right in the thick of it. So uh, my apologies for that. But Richard, thank you so much for coming on and uh, hope to speak to you again very soon. Thank you. Yes, off to naps. Okay. Do you know, I think that's the second connection we have with the bill, isn't it, Mark? Because we've had an author on the show. Yes. Yeah, yeah, actually, there's even more. There's lots, which is funny because one of my sister's friends at school years back, she became a police police woman. And then she became one of the um, people that that would check if the bill was correct or not. Which is fascinating because that's what Richard talked about in terms of in terms of getting experts to review his work. And it really struck me, actually, that whole point about, because I know that researching is such a massive part, and I know that you're a huge stickler for, like, it's got to be, it's got to be right. You know, it's you, you've got to get it, make it authentic. Because I remember even with, with our novel, Back to Reality, you talked to bus drivers, you talked to surgeons did, was it a surgeon you reached out to someone in the oncology? we, we were talking to someone because we have someone in a coma so i talked that's to that's right an anesthetist <laughs> right an anesthetist. yes so, so and, and, and a lot of that is hugely hugely time consuming and it suddenly struck me when richard talked about this i thought what a brilliant way of doing it is actually to write it and then ask somebody is this accurate and then make the tweaks because doing all those interviews I actually read the other day. I was reading a, um, I was reading a book called Jackdaw by Ken Follett when I was camping, which is about World War Two. It's re- women like going into a kind of up behind enemy lines in World War Two. It's really oh, fascinating. Cool. Yeah, really good. Right, uh, based street. on a true story. And and I, <laughs> I heard that Ken Follett has has three stages to writing. He spends a year researching each book, a year writing each book, and then a year editing. And the researching part, he's paying a team to actually go out and, you know, learn about maybe special equipment in World War II so he can be really accurate about it. But I love Richard's approach in that, you know, write what you think it is, maybe do a little bit of research and then say, because they only need to really tweak the bit. But then I guess in some ways you do get a lot of extra value speaking to people, don't you, in terms of getting more of a kind of a background and it probably makes the writing stronger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, it the... I will direct listeners to episode 139 of the podcast. And I'll put a You're link good. in the show notes where we spoke <laughs> We spoke to Lisa Cutts, who is a an author, best-selling um, crime thriller author, but also still a working copper on, on the Kent right. Police. And she has a service where basically, and, and I think with Claire's book, we'll be using it soon, actually, where, where you know, you send the book to her and she'll go, okay, they need to do, the police will do this. This is what crime scene looks like, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the that's the Ian Rankin method, I'm, I think, which is where you write the book and then you go and research those specific points that that uh, pertain to, to what you're writing. Uh, I mean, what's interesting, it, we have a guest in a few weeks, uh, an author called Mick Finley, who I interviewed this morning, who 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 starts, who who sort of does the research, starts the book, then does the research in parallel, historical research, which is fascinating. So stay tuned, subscribe, so make sure you don't miss that one because that's a really interesting way of doing it. But yeah, I mean, I guess Ken Follett, one of the biggest selling authors in the world, he he could afford 
to maybe employ a few researchers. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. 170 million books Ken sold. And I think it's, I, I must admit though, when we were writing Back to Reality, um, I kind of delved quite deep into a lot of the research around ley lines and Glastonbury yeah. and all those kind of things. And I've got to say, I loved it. It was so fascinating. And I think there's a tendency that you can get so sucked into it. But I must admit that a lot of the ideas that came up for our book were uh, were kind of triggered by things that I was researching, um, not necessarily to find an idea to write about, but to, to clarify something. And then I suddenly, you know, we learned about like a cave at the bottom of, do you remember that yes. cave at the, yeah, 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 the bottom yeah, of the yeah. tour at Glastonbury where there's yeah. magical, you know, properties <laughs> in the water. It, all that came about because we stumbled across that whilst we were looking, um, we were looking for things. So I think, yeah, it's interesting. There's, there's two sides to research, isn't there? There's the getting it accurate, but there's in the also, you know, finding out new ideas and i think you know even in in the interview i saw with ken he ken follett said you know a lot of his ideas are triggered by true stories that he reads about and then he kind of adapts those stories and turns them into fiction well that's that brings me on to my next point with richard's interview and richard articulated something that happens to me and I've never heard one of our guests say it before because we're talking about, oh, yes, real life is stranger than fiction. And Richard talked about how he makes a note of real events in the hope that he can fit it into a story. And then he starts writing that story. And then he finds himself trying to take that real anecdote out because it doesn't fit. And it happens to me every time I, because I, I read the 14 times and stuff. And I'm, oh, that'd be an amazing story. Let's, let's, and then I start writing it. And, and then, so the true life idea triggers me. To get me writing, it gives me momentum. But once I'm writing, that other person's story kind of falls by the wayside. But now I'm writing what I want to write. I'm now doing my take on it. And it's it's um, it happens to me every time I try and write something from real life. I'm like, actually, I'm th- thank you, thank you for the idea. Idea, off you go. I'm yeah. now busy on this now. now. You know, thank yeah, you. Bye. Exactly. Your work is your work here is done. I love <laughs> exactly. it. Well, yeah. it's great though, isn't it? It's great. So I think you know. Anyone that thinks, I mean, there's two types of writers, I think. There are writers who just have too many ideas. That's most of us, I think, especially, I mean, I'm, I have so many ideas for books constantly. Um, and then there are, other, there are other writers who struggle because they, they're not getting an idea that really grabs them, you know, and they're waiting, waiting for that idea to hit them. And they go, that's worth, you know, a year of my life writing or researching. Um, and I think that... You know, if you fall into that latter category, then getting inspired by real life stories, like find something you're fascinated in and delve into it and find an avatar, a character, a real life story. And like Mark says, like run with that and see what happens with the story. Because like you say, you can remove things and then it becomes almost completely unique. And it's then just an inspired by rather than based on. Although I think there's value. Do you think, Mark, there's value in having based on true events, because I think I always like books like that because I think, oh gosh, this is actually, that this, this could have happened. Yeah. Yeah. We love, we love it when, when something is based on reality and it's strange and it's, it's, uh, but of course, sometimes, uh, you know, storytellers can pull the wool over your eyes because you look at the beginning of Fargo, it says based on real events. It wasn't, wasn't, it was complete, complete fiction. Um, so, you know, <laughs> you get people messing with that. But I, I, I can see the attraction here based on a true story. Um, I mean, you, you get that with the Conjuring movies because they're supposed to be based on the Amityville story, the Amityville horror, uh, which, of course, you know, 
didn't happen. Sorry for what it did happen, mm. but it didn't happen. Um, but they've they've managed to squeeze eight or nine films out of that, which is yeah, brilliant. Good well going, done, isn't you it? know. But you know, so if you can uh, if you can sort of slip in, oh yeah, this is based on. This is, you know, so with Unwelcome, the film, it's based on a real Irish mythology. You know, we don't yeah. sell it on that necessarily, but, no. you know, and anything with a bit of realism. But if you're talking you know, particularly with uh, like political thrillers or murder mysteries or whatever, you know, if so, All the President's Men, fantastic book and script by William Goldman, um, you know, collating all of, all of those weird events that were going on around Nixon and Watergate and making some sense of it uh, so you can watch it in whatever it is, two, two and a half hours. Um, that is totally gripping, totally gripping. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a real skill to pull that off uh, and still have a narrative drive behind it because so much of real life is just too weird. All these digressions, things happening here, people, you know, double backing on themselves. Real life is just very very strange i tell you what you know this is so fascinating i, I want to kind of dive deeper into this i'm i'm going to put it out there to anyone in the academy if they have a question my, i mean my question for you which i'll submit actually mark for your craft coaching the life craft coaching that you do in the academy <laughs> i'm going to submit a question specifically around at what point can you you know up to what point can you say based on true events and then what when does it become a bit too ambiguous because we haven't got time to go into that now but Look out for the question because that's how we rock and roll in the academy. It's like Mark actually does Q and A sessions um, live on on Zoom. It's brilliant. Um, the other thing that I found quite fascinating was this idea of napping, um, and oh, I was man. thinking of every every parent out there with young kids must be like, yeah, if only, <laughs> if only. I remember I used to get a nap actually when my when one of my kids, when they were babies, fell asleep, that's when I'd be like, I'd just fall asleep with them with them yeah, in my arms. That's the time to do it, yeah. Um, but it is actually, it's actually something I hear a lot of actually in the business circles as well. Like, you know, these big CEOs of like massive tech companies, they will just literally take a 15, 20 minute cat nap in the middle of the afternoon when you hit kind of a, a, a not a low, but your energy levels are super low. Um, it's fascinating that you and Richard both do that. Is that something that you've done for a long time, would you say? Or is it more well, recent? Well, as, as I said in the interview, it's it, when I was driving as a sales rep for a publisher, it was a habit I got into. Because if right. you're driving 200, 300 miles a day and you're driving back in you know heavy traffic, you don't want to be drowsy. So I would have that sort of 20 minute cat nap and you wake up completely refreshed and mm. it did work. I set an alarm and everything. So you just, and you practice your breathing and you, you know, you bring yourself down and that. I, I know a lot of people fall asleep listening to the podcast. So, uh, <laughs> night, night. Um, so, <laughs> That's probably already gone, um, Mark. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Bye back to reality. Tell your friends. Um, so yeah, I, I would, I, that was something I'll get into. I, I got into, but I just, um, I, I know my own kind of body clock and I know that sort of mid-afternoon I, I sometimes I will hit a wall. Mm. Now, I, these days I do two things. I either get on the exercise bike or go for a walk or I have a nap. Um, depends what I'm doing afterwards, you know. But yeah. uh, sometimes I just a 20-minute, 30-minute nap, set the alarm, close the door. And that is a – you're right, it is a privileged thing. It is something I'm I'm able to do. Um, and, can, of course, if you're working in an office, you can't suddenly say, right, I'm – 
maybe we should because you know we're not designed I think for this in nine some, to five in, existence. Yeah, you know, I do know that in some companies they do have that. They actually have kind of a room. I think Google do or something where you can literally go and just as hammocks and things where you can just literally go and take a nap because they know that. And actually, we've coached a little bit around this. People in the academy, they'll remember we've coached a little bit around this idea of you know being a writer is not just about how good you write and when you write. It's also about understanding your own energy cycles throughout the day and everyone's different everyone's unique and we kind of delved a bit into the idea of you know when we hit our low moments in terms of energy and when our creativity can kind of like dry up or um, we can lose kind of momentum or motivation and it's really important to understand the the kind of human aspect of what happens to you as a writer so we kind of delve into that as well because I think it's it's part of the entire toolkit of what makes a successful writer and I bet you a lot of bestsellers you know they've 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 studied this and they've worked these things out for themselves or or you know uh, in other ways as well i think um the other thing is you're letting your mind reboot you're letting your subconscious sort out story problems for you and it you know speaking from my own experience it definitely works you know if you just say okay i'm trying too hard i'm banging my head against a wall let's either go for a walk or have a nap or reboot leave it till tomorrow you know the the cogs are still whirring away in the background there, but they're they're not feeling the pressure as much. And of course, as we all know, when you take the pressure off, some, nine times out of ten, you find a solution. Something happens. Something ticks away at the back of the brain there. So it's oh uh, yeah, completely yeah. I talk a lot about how the the subconscious works whilst you sleep in terms of actually organising and sorting out problems, so that when you wake up everything's suddenly much clearer and that can just be because you take a nap so it's it's not it's not necessarily being lazy taking a nap it can actually be incredibly more productive than keeping on working so there's an and interesting think, thought right i think i think there's something in it i mean rich as richard said he's in the i love this phrase he says i'm in the then what phase which is you know when you're writing you go, okay then what and you know so you do need to recharge the batteries to to you know to to get over those story hurdles absolutely brilliant stuff so, Mark, tell me what's been going on on social media this week. Oh, it's it's good news stories. It's good news stories, which we always, always love. So um, one of our academates, oh, this is such good news, Saivar, Saivar Haldorsson, uh, has finished the first draft of his 73,000-word Icelandic noir crime novel, and he says he could not have done it without Bessel Experiment and the Academy, who helped me develop a daily writing habit. Huge, huge congrats to Saivar there. I can't wait. Saivar writes the kind of books I really, really love, actually. And um, I can't wait to read this. So big congrats to you, Saivar. That's brilliant, Saivar. And I know that Saivar's actually been working on, I think it's like an Icelandic thriller, mm, if I remember yeah. rightly. And they've been so hugely popular on a lot of the um, streaming services. I know that people love the Scandinavian and Icelandic kind of thrillers. So... Yeah, very excited for what Saivos creating there in the academy. That's fantastic. Another academy, Joe Ruiz. He's been. Now we we talk about the two hundred word a day habit. Joe's started a two thousand word a day habit, which we've gone. Hey, Joe, Joe, are you sure? Joe, he says. No, seriously, two thousand. He said nothing concrete yet, just notes and synopses, mostly free association that's morphed into bits and pieces. It's clearing out the junk. He said. He said I had a zero habit of writing, so I decided to re reverse engineer and train myself to write two thousand words a day, sit and write, no matter what. A bit like showing up at the gym every day. Maybe I will just stare into space on the exercise bike, but eventually I will pedal. He's done it seven days in a row so so far. He doesn't lack ideas, 
This is this is what we were saying. Ideas aren't the problem, but I've learned that what I lacked was discipline. The experiment is not over yet. 14 days to go. Joe, Brilliant. we're with you all the way there, man. Go for fantastic. it, Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. It's fantastic news. And we had some great feedback on uh, one of our deep dives. Uh, we did a terrific deep dive with Sarah Cox on book launches. And uh, Andrew Chapman got in touch. Uh, he says, I wish I'd heard it six months ago. He's got a horror novel coming out this Halloween, Jack's Game. So he's going to apply it to that. Um, so, yeah, good luck with that, Andrew. Really hope that. Uh, and uh, seriously, Sarah's, it's the longest deep dive we've done. It's, it's over. Is it longer than an hour and a half? And there's a downloadable sheet as well and a tick list and everything. Do if, if you've ever been on the shelf about becoming a patron and checking out the deep dives, I mean, there's over ninety of the things now, but this this one is 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 absolutely top notch, absolutely top notch. And uh, just a little note that Robin Sarti, who's one of our favourite people, she she's just been a cheerleader for the podcast for a very very long time. She helps us out on the academy. She's got a new dog, uh, an eight week old Bernese Mountain Dog called Toblerone, and it's almost as if Robin has said, give me the cutest dog on the entire planet. And uh, <laughs> so she's been sharing that with the group as well, which is just adorable. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, we're all up for writer's pets, aren't we, Mr. D? Well, we are. And do you know what? Do you know what? I actually saw one of our um, Academy members. One of the things we ask people to do is we say, set your goal, declare, declare, declare your dream in the Academy, and then you have to say how you're going to celebrate and we now have our second Academy member who said that they're going to get a puppy when they finish writing their book. A rescue puppy, importantly. A, res- a, rescue, a rescue puppy, puppy yeah, yeah, yeah. which is yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. brilliant. So I, saw I love it. I think it's uh, – bring it on. Bring on the dogs. Bring on the <laughs> bring on the pets. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely great. And what a great excuse to get out walking in between mm. all those writing sessions, keeping fit, keeping mobile. We've talked a lot about the importance of mental health on this show and keeping fit. And we spend a lot of time on our bums. That's actually mm. a quote we should have. We spend, Mark Stone, oh, Mark we spend a lot of time on our bums. <laughs> on our bums, um, yep. And I think it's very important to get up and, and get out and about, and that can get great ideas going as well. So brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing all that wonderful news, and congratulations to everyone. If you have any news you want to share with us, we love to talk about your wins on this show, so please do contact us. And Mark, people can contact us in many different ways. They can indeed. Come and find us on bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. You can contact us via email or on social media. Come to Facebook. Uh, we're Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at bestsellerxp. And if this podcast in its many, many hundreds of episodes has been in any way helpful to you, please subscribe, rate, review on your podcast catcher of choice. Every one of those little reviews or star ratings makes us a little bit more visible and helps us you know, spread the word to writers out there whose voices have yet to be heard, whose stories have yet to be told. We want to hear them all. So uh, get in touch, folks, and, and give us a rating. And also a big thank you, as always, to our editors, Dave and JD. Absolutely. And if you would like to get a lifetime habit of writing, try our 200 word challenge, our free 200 word challenge. I, Mark, am doing this. I mean, I you know, we started this like, what, a year and a half ago. I am holding myself accountable because in the academy, we now have writing buddies, which means I now have to actually email or message rather to my writing buddy how many words I wrote, how many minutes I edited if I didn't write or a bit of both if I did both. And it is unbelievably brilliant i cannot begin to tell you so if you want to do the free challenge join us at uh, 200wordchallenge.com if you would like to get a writing buddy 
every day and a different writing buddy each month to keep you accountable. I promise you, you will finish your book. It is the best thing ever. It's like having a partner who shows up to go jogging with you every morning. Um, it's super, super amazing. Um, so if you're interested in that, come and join the Academy and you will get to choose or you'll get a writing partner um, each month, a new person to work with. So on that note, Mark, it's a goodbye from Mark One. And I had a little note from a listener saying that they like my silly voices when I say goodbye at the end. So it's a goodbye from Mark Tool. Toodaloo. <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye.